The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. A new series, um, Honest Discipleship. And there's a reason for the word honest, and I hope you'll, you'll pick that out as we go and uh, continue to move through the series. This morning we're looking at Discipleship's True Call. <clears throat> this week I was uh, working on, on the message, and um, it was Wednesday, we just had all that snow, and I heard some noise outside, and I went to the window, looked out, and here Rick McCarrison was shoveling the walkways and clearing the snow away, and, and uh, so I texted him, and I said, hey man, th- thanks for doing that. I, I said I wanted to do it, but don't have all my energy back yet, and I really appreciate it. And he texted me back, he said... Uh, you work, on the wor- you work on the word, I'll work on the walk. I sat back, and I thought, man, there's three weeks of messages right there. So, Lord used Rick to, as the Holy Spirit this week. But really, it, get, it put me in that mind of the walk. So let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for your blessing. I pray now as we begin on this new journey together that you would fascinate us with the reality of discipleship, the absolute privilege of walking with you. And I pray that you would burn it into our hearts and our minds and encourage us with the tremendous blessings that you have in store for all of us if we would simply let go and follow you. So I pray your blessing now on your word. May Jesus Christ be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to start in a very unusual manner this morning because I'm going to take you to a passage of scripture that is never really talked about in discipleship. And I have a reason for it. When you hear the word discipleship, what comes to your mind? Obviously, following Christ, very basic. But I wonder sometimes if you don't think, first of all, of things I have to do, things I shouldn't do. And maybe to you it's a legalistic connotation because I, in order to be what Jesus wants me to be, I have to do this, I have to do this, I shouldn't do this, I can't do this. And before long, we've crafted for ourselves lives that try to stay in God's graces while trying to enjoy life the way I want it. And oftentimes, we miss the reality of what true discipleship is, what really honest discipleship is. I want you to go to Psalm 19 this morning. Because, you know, in Psalm 19, the psalmist is talking about the law, this law that nobody is able to keep. Jesus came, of course, to satisfy the law. He didn't come to do away with the law. He came to satisfy the law for those who he knew couldn't keep it. And by simply accepting his free gift of salvation through his death, burial, resurrection, we have forgiveness of sins. But the psalmist talks about the law in a manner that I think is is very fascinating. Beginning in verse 7, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So I'm to understand that the very law gives me wisdom. 
It gives me understanding. It gives me the capacity to know God's will. And why? Because it's his word. The precepts of the Lord are light, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Now, the psalmist didn't have graters or Hagandas or whatever your sweetness of choice is. Honey was the ultimate. And he is saying that the word is even sweeter than that honey, even directly from the honeycomb. In fact, it's more to be desired than gold, and not just any gold, the finest gold. It's an amazing concept. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. John Piper wrote, The heart is not the organ of doing for God, it's the organ of delighting in God. And the reality of what the Bible lays down for you and I is a complete understanding that in God's word is incredible joy, incredible peace, incredible success. Psalm 119, real quick, beginning in verse 99. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. That is the key to honest discipleship. It is the discipleship that Jesus called the first disciples to, and it is the discipleship that he calls you and I to today. The reality is, is this great God who loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us has also provided a way for you and I to enjoy absolute and wonderful joy. Now, as you think of your own personal life this morning, is that a characteristic of your Christianity? Is he the absolute joy and peace of your heart? Because that's what he desires for all of us. So honest discipleship is not a drudge. It's not a a work in progress. It's not something that's difficult. It is actually a pathway to the greatest peace you and I could ever know and the greatest joy we can ever experience. The problem is, in today's church, there is a fatal defect in the life 
of the modern church. It's the lack of true discipleship. Biblical discipleship means forsaking everything else to follow Christ. But today, for many churches, it is the case that while there is much talk about Christ and even much furious activity, there is actually very little little following of Christ himself. And that means that in some circles, there's very little genuine Christianity. We should not be surprised about this, because Jesus himself even said this is the way it would be. In Matthew 7, verse 21, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount of Olives, uh, uttered shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus compared the profession about uh, the—excuse uh, me—the profession of unconverted so-called Christians to women waiting for a bridegroom to appear at the wedding banquet. They were unprepared for his coming and therefore were shut out. Again, Jesus compared professing Christians to a man who was given a talent to invest but who failed to use it and was thrown into utter darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 25, verse 30. In a third comparison, he described these people as failing to feed the hungry, to give drinks to those thirsty, receive strangers, clothe the naked, care for the sick, visit those who were imprisoned. These people called Jesus Lord. They considered themselves genuine Christians. But they were not Christians and therefore perished. We need to ask then, what does it mean to be Christian? And whether those shortcomings are found in our own personal lives. So let's begin, first of all, by looking at the price of grace. There are several reasons why defective theology has crept into the church today. One commentator puts it, like a deadening fog. The theology separates faith from discipleship and grace from obedience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German churchman of the Nazi area who eventually was martyred for his stand against what Hitler was doing, he's called it cheap grace. He said, quote, "'Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance.'" Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. End of quote. The contrast is literally costly grace. We see it in that beautiful story of the treasure hidden in the field in Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. It's the rule of Christ, for which sake a man will pluck out an eye that causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ to which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, but it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. So we come naturally then to put it in perspective to an understanding of what Jesus' words meant, follow 
me. What was he saying to the early disciples? What is he saying to you and I today? As we will see from the words of Jesus himself, discipleship is involved in what it means to be a Christian. We must understand that discipleship is not a supposed second step in Christianity, as if one becomes a believer in Jesus and then, if he chooses, a disciple. We see this right off the top as Jesus instructs those who come to him to follow him. I take you to Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. It says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting nets into the sea. For they were fishermen, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately, they left the boats and their father, and they followed him. This type of call is given to all true discipleships. Now, of course, Jesus was calling these men to a service because they were the first missionaries. They were the ones that were going to take the gospel and spread it, and they left everything. You and I today are not necessarily called to accept Christ and walk away from our jobs or our families or anything else. But the principle is we walk away from a life of sin and separate ourselves unto a life of rejoicing and living for Christ. In Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 32, it says, After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he arose and followed him. You see, I think the problem that we have today is that people want mercy, but no sacrifice. And this shows that the command to follow Jesus was not understood by him to be only mere physical following or even an invitation to learn more about him and then see if you wanted to be a permanent disciple or not. Jesus understood it as turning from sin to salvation. It was a call to healing by God. It was a call to following a life of purity and a life of obedience that he laid before us. And in the first chapter of John, there is a long narrative in which John the Baptist uh, witnesses uh, about Jesus Christ, and several of his people leave and then go to follow Jesus. And as they're following him physically, Jesus sees them, and he issues the invitation, come, which is a synonym for follow. At the end of the gospel, Jesus tells Peter when he has recommissioned him to service after his denial of Christ and, and his struggles. He meets him on the beach in the last chapter of John, and he recommissions him, and he tells John, follow me. And, you know, he tells him, of course, to go and feed his sheep. And all the words follow me occur 13 times in the gospels, but it is also implied all through the Gospels. And clearly, it is a very basic concept and one clearly understood by the early church that when God calls you to salvation, he calls you to follow. And so a true, genuine child of God, 
heeds the call in salvation and then surrenders their life completely to the leading of God. And in our case, through the Holy Spirit who then dwells within us. So what is the essence of true discipleship? What is involved in the words, follow me? I want to give you five words this morning. They're certainly not unique with me. You can read any of the ancient writers and and listen to many of the top pastors and preachers around the country today, and you'll find these words in some form or another because they're the bedrock of what a true disciple is. The first word is obedience. Obedience. Now, we're not talking about mindless adherence to authority, a do-it-or-else mentality. When it comes to a phrase like, follow me, we naturally think of it as an invitation and conform our evangelism to that pattern. We invite people to follow Jesus. But if we're not careful, we lead people away from the key meaning. The word follow me is in the imperative mood in the Greek, and therefore it's a command, which is why those commanded to follow Jesus did in fact get up, leave their nets, their boats, their counting tables, or whatever it was that was occupying their time, and follow Jesus. On his lips, the command follow me was no more irresistible than the command he gave Jesus to come forth, or gave Lazarus to come forth in John 11, verse 43. It was the equivalent of what theologians term as God's effectual call. That is another way of saying that without obedience, there's no real Christianity. It's not that people cannot follow Jesus in a lesser sense and then fall away when the demands become too critical. You see that all through the Gospels. Many persons did follow and then fell away. But the key we find, however, is that those who are genuinely Christ's sheep obey his call and enter into a life of obedience. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they come. And in that is surrendering our lives to Jesus and his ways. Number two, repentance. When Jesus called Matthew, he called one who was regarded as a sinner. So he emphasized repentance. In Luke chapter 5, verse 32, he said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. But the need for repentance is no less evident in the call of all the disciples. For example, in both Matthew and Mark, the account of the calling of the first disciple is immediately preceded by a record of Christ's first preaching, focusing on the words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4.17, to be precise, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke's account of the equivalent story is embedded in Jesus' first miracle where he loaded the nets of fish so full that the nets began to break. This so overwhelmed Peter because Peter realized his holiness and his sinfulness that Peter cried out in Luke 5, 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am. I am a sinful man, O Lord. The point is, 
that it is impossible to follow Christ without repentance. How could it be otherwise? Jesus is holy, sinful, sinless, excuse me, son of God. So anyone who is following him, not some imaginary Jesus, must by definition have turned his back upon sin and set his face towards righteousness. Now, certainly Christians sin. Our flesh gets in the way often. But the true child of God, when convicted by the, by the Spirit, can, uh, repents, turns away from that sin, and bows at the feet of Jesus in utter obedience. But anyone who thinks that they can follow Christ without renouncing sin is dreadfully confused on what salvation means. Number three, submission. And one of Jesus' most important sayings about discipleship, which we will see in greater detail in the, next, the weeks to come, the Lord pictures discipleship as putting on a yoke. This suggests a number of things. But chiefly, it suggests that submission to Christ for his assigned work. It is the picture of an animal being yoked together for others. I've shared the illustration before with you, but uh, when they would train young oxen to turn the wheels to grind wheat, they would actually put him in a set of yoke where the bigger adult was on the outside and he was carrying the whole load turning and the younger one would just be yoked to him and learn to walk with him until he, he understood what it meant to carry the load. But in the, in the great illustration of the Lord, when he says, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy, he's literally saying, yoke up with me and let me carry you through. Let me lead you. Submit literally comes from the Latin, from two Latin words, sub meaning under, and mido meaning to put or to place. So submission means putting oneself under the authority of another. The word subject also comes to us from two Latin words. It's the case sub meaning under and icto meaning cast or throw. It means being put under authority of another. And that is the word that relates to the word yoke. At old times, when a nation would conquer another, they would often erect a, a board or, or a pole over two others, and they would instruct those who had been conquered to pass through it, literally passing under the yoke and showing by doing that their submission to the conquering rulers. When Jesus used this image, he was saying that to follow him was to submit to him. It was to receive him as Lord of one's life. Now, when you look at that in just basic language, you almost look at it as like, oh, I've been conquered. I have to submit. But when you think back of Psalm 119 and Psalm 19, and you listen to the words of Jesus, you're being invited to follow the most spectacular life available. You and I have literally been given the tools to enjoy life this side of glory. Now, this life gets miserable at times. It gets very difficult, as we've seen this weekend. A lot of heartache, a lot of bad news, a lot of things going wrong. But when your heart is hidden in the words of God, 
as Solomon instructed in the book of Proverbs, right in chapter 1, when he said, paraphrasing, take these words and know them, and you shall have incredible wisdom. Psalm 119 said, you'll have more understanding than your teachers. You can know the mind of God. And when you're facing tough times and you're facing a difficult path, instead of being uh, scattered and afraid and running to your own understanding, you can take the word of God and by the leading of the Holy Spirit be led to explicit instructions of how to handle the situation. You can be led to honest direction to know the mind of God. It's promised in Scripture. Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what kind of mind was that? A mind of sacrifice? A mind of putting God first? A mind of putting Him above everything we do? You know, when we kind of say like a broken record week in and week out, He must increase, I must decrease, you understand that the reality of that statement is when He's increasing your life, He's controlling you. And a true, honest disciple is being controlled by the Spirit of God doesn't make mean we're not going to make mistakes. It doesn't mean we're going to trip and fall. This flesh of ours is brutal. The sinful nature is tough, and it will be tough. But we've been warned about that by the Heavenly Father. He has given us the instruction. And so the call to discipleship is literally a call to abide in Christ. What Jesus is saying is, look, Come close to me. Get under my yoke. Let me bear the weight of what you're going through. Because I have told you through my word and through my spirit, you shall have complete understanding. And you shall know the path to follow. Number four, commitment. The fourth element in following Christ is commitment for the simple reason that it's impossible to follow Christ without being committed to him. How do you follow anything without being committed to it? A lack of commitment means deviating from his path or a falling away from him. You see, a failure to follow him literally means you're committed to something or someone else And quite often, that something else is you. Am I right? It's difficult to take my dreams, my goals, my aspirations, and submit them to the will of God. Surprisingly, this has become a hotly contested issue on the grounds that teaching commitment to Christ is to add something to faith which makes it a false gospel. That is, faith plus works, in this case commitment, equals salvation. But we've got to make this very clear right now before we go any farther. Salvation is grace plus nothing. You can't earn it. Your church attendance isn't going to get you there. Your Bible memorization isn't going to get you there. How many people you help isn't going to get you there. How much money you put in the offering isn't going to get you there. Nothing we can do. Our works are as filthy rags. 
But as the simplest word in the Bible, John 3.16 says, God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you believe that Christ died to pay the price for your sins and you accept that free gift, thou shalt be saved. It's grace plus nothing. But where the question comes in, is it possible to believe on Jesus as one Savior from sin without a willingness to follow him? And consider these examples. Peter resisted Christ in Acts chapter 10. Believers at Ephesus apparently refused to give up their magic charms and books for as long as two years after they were saved, Acts chapter 19. And in the Old Testament, Lot was saved and declared a righteous man by God while he was still living in Sodom, 2 Peter 2, 7 through 8. The issue is not whether believers sin. Obviously, we do. But it's whether they can come to Christ in faith while at the same time denying or resisting his lordship over them. Now, let's clear this up by by considering here the meaning of the word Lord. It's reason that the reference to Jesus, Lord, means God Jesus or Jehovah Jesus. That is why a word that was originally used in the human level to denote sovereignty over slaves is used of God, of Jesus. Jehovah means master. Jehovah is called the Lord because he is master. He is sovereign master. Hence, the kairos, Lord, is he is Lord over all. Who is God if not master. If God is not sovereign, he is not God. No other God other than the sovereign God is presented to us in the Bible. So we can't add anything to Christ's finished work. It is for that very reason that we direct believers to the Lord Jesus Christ. But he is the Lord Christ, the master. The Lord is the object of faith and its content. There is no other. Consequently, if faith is directed to anyone other, any other Lord, it is directed to a false Christ of our imagination, one who fits our desires. Such a one is not the Savior. And this is why James was adamant about faith having works. He never said salvation was because of works, as many people have tried to argue. He simply supported Paul's argument that faith plus nothing manifests itself in works. No one is saved by a dead faith, but a living faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. For the Lord is the Savior, and the Savior is the Lord. So a true child of God whose heart is radically transformed, who turns away from sin and gives his life to Christ, is one who seeks to follow Christ in obedience. To glorify Christ, to live for Christ, and to honor Christ. You call, I've said in the past, that the whole reason God created man in the first place 
was for fellowship and to glorify Him. Once sin destroyed the relationship, man was floundering. But when Christ came, paid the price for sin, when man turns back, gives his life to Christ, that whole purpose is reinstated. Now, the expressed reason you and I live is to bring glory to Christ. So how can I bring glory to God if I'm not living submissive to Him? How can I possibly understand the heart of God if I don't know His Word? How can I possibly fulfill the call in my life of walking with Him, bringing glory to Him, and on top of that, experiencing immense joy without submitting to Him? He is the reason we live. He is the reason we exist. He's the reason that we will live for eternity. Doesn't it stand to reason that he should have all of me now? Number five, perseverance. Perseverance because following is not an isolated act done once and then never to be repeated. It is a lifetime commitment that is not fulfilled here until we cross that final barrier to glory. Discipleship is not merely a door to be entered, but a path to be followed. And the disciple proves that validity of his discipleship by following the path Christ has marked out for his children. David wrote in Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This path that I am on for as many years as I'm here on this earth. Psalm 119, verse 112, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. As you sit here this morning and consider honest discipleship, you realize that a path that God has put me on is the most rewarding, fulfilling path I could ever come up with. Well, we can try to design our own life for riches, for health, for peace, for all the things that we know how to put together. But when the bottom drops out, where do we go? Isn't it nice to know that right from the start, our path is ordered by the Lord? Before the foundation of the world, God marked out our path. The question is, are we willing to follow the path? Because the blessings and the joy have been preset. God has laid them out. And now he calls us to enjoy them. To seize them. And even when things get difficult, knowing God has allowed them to work his purpose, I can still find immense peace. I can still find immense joy. And that's why Paul said very clearly when he was testifying, 
He said, I've learned that whatever state I'm in, to be content. I never fully grasped that till cancer. And now I can publicly testify to you by the word of God and by my existence, there's no greater joy. There's no greater joy. Wouldn't you like to have that peace this morning? Wouldn't you like to just know that God is walking through every step? Are you an honest disciple this morning? Does he own your life? And are you prepared for the joy that's set before you? As we come to communion and as we reflect on what Jesus did to purchase us and to set up that life of discipleship, we're reminded that out of his great love, he laid down his life for you and I. As the men come to prepare, I'd like you to use these few moments of meditation to really be honest with yourself. Am I an honest disciple? Am I yielding to discipleship's true call? Am I available to Christ? Or is my life clouding everything and keeping me from the amazing path set before me? Let's bow our heads, let's spend a few time, and let's just reflect with God, shall we? And Father, as we go to you now, speak to our hearts. Draw out anything within me that shouldn't be there. Draw out anything in me that's hindering the discipleship you've called me to be. I ask this in your name.
Father, I trust that our hearts are honest before you. I pray, Lord, as we begin now by partaking of these elements, that the overwhelming joy of realizing what you've done on our behalf because of your great love and how you've secured our eternity for those who have accepted you can also have the assurance of your mind in our lives today, right here and now, and for tomorrow and the next day and the next week and month and years, as long as we have here, because you've provided us the tools to know your mind. Rejuvenate us today. Excite us with the reality of who you are and who we are in Christ. And we ask this in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is our custom, we'll stand, join hands, and sing a verse of this hymn. Father, we thank you this morning that we're no longer blind, that we see your amazing grace. And Father, we pray that you would just excite us with the opportunity we have to lay the life, live the life of discipleship you've laid out before us, a life that comes from your mind and your heart to lead us into a wonderful, fulfilled life of joy. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage us to take that step in faith, to walk in obedience. And we pray, Lord, for many who are unable to be here today because of illness. So many of our number down. We pray for healing and that they would be back with us again next week. Go with us this day. May we go rejoicing and excited because you live and you live in us. And all God's people said, amen. God bless.